0: everyone, welcome back to Podside Picnic. I'm Connor, and as usual, I'm joined by my co-host Pete, and today we have a very, very special guest. Um, I'm guessing probably all of you know him, unless you're from a really far-funged place and don't follow us on Twitter, but uh, he is currently a staff writer at the New Republic, formerly a writer and editor at many places, including Gawker. Um, And not to be too hyperbolic, but in my opinion, he might be categorically the best political commentator in the United States. He's uh, certainly a
1: damn good one.
0: <laughs> He's a very good one. Uh, his name is Alex Perrine. Thank you so much for coming on, man. Thank you so much.
1: <laughs> I, I I feel like we're about to give you a medal of some time. I know, I
2: do. I feel like I'm getting an award instead of like appearing <laughs> on, a, on a podcast to talk about Star Trek IV. <laughs>
0: You're gonna get the podcasters' medal of freedom, and I would have made a, like a Federation medal joke there if I were a Star Trek fan, but unfortunately, that's to you too. So, <laughs>
1: okay. So, leading into, the, I, I guess we might as well get started, Alex. Uh, so, okay. Uh, leading into this, I know that uh, Star Trek Six is one of your favorite movies, and yes, <laughs> I'm very excited we could talk about something you like. But unfortunately. Connor gave me the wrong number, so we're talking about <laughs> whales today. Yeah, we're going to talk. We're going to talk whales. And so,
2: I, you know, I, I should not, I, I used like a true fan. When, in my DMs I use the Roman numerals, and it's very easy to mistake <laughs> the Roman numeral four for the Roman numeral six. <laughs> so, uh, but you know that's fun because I love I love Star Trek four as well. So I'm I'm thrilled to talk about Star
1: Trek four. Okay. Well, I I got my one needle into Cotter, so I'm happy to keep going here. <laughs> um, so, uh, Star Trek four. Uh, what's your relationship to it? Did you see it in the theaters? When when did? Actually, let me rewind that. We should start a lot farther back. What's your first experience with Star Trek?
2: I mean, you know, it was a part of my life since childhood. My parents, my mom in particular, was a fan. And uh, um, when I was growing up, uh, Next Generation, uh, when did that? It was 87, I think, that started. Yeah. Um, And I was born in 85. Next Generation was uh, syndicated. And by the time I was, like, old enough to watch TV, it was just on all the time it was already in reruns basically like even though it wasn't done yet they were sort of rerunning it on syndicated tv so i grew up on next generation my mom was a huge fan of the original series which she had grown up on so uh i but um you couldn't you know there wasn't a way to sort of watch old tv easily back then so all you could do was sort of go to the movie store and rent the movies so i rented the original cast movies over and over i don't know why i didn't buy the tapes (laughs) i just rented them over and over again um and uh i i'm so much more familiar with the characters from the original cast movies than i even am i've obviously seen the original series at this point because i'm a nerd and i watched it when i was like a a teenager but uh the the, those original cast movies are like dear to my heart because i definitely i just saw them so much as a kid
1: yeah I mean, uh, you and I have similar similar backstories in this, except uh, I I was born about fifteen years earlier, and I grew up watching uh, uh, the original series in syndication over and over. And- yeah, right. Yeah, I think that
2: was yeah. That's definitely because that's how everyone. I mean, it was it was on TV constantly.
1: Oh right? yeah, yeah. You couldn't escape. Well, I mean, I suppose there were other things like I could watch one day at a time, <laughs> but given a choice between the two, there wasn't much for it, you know. Yeah. So, um. We've had some talks on this podcast about uh, Star Trek being sort of a Trojan horse for uh, certain political uh, outlooks and that sort of thing. And in Star Trek 4, there's a specific point where they're like, well, these people are primitive. They still use money. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So yeah. Where did you go with that? Did you say, oh, they all have credit cards or did you say, OK, we're actually talking post-capitalism here? Like what is what is the future of Star Trek to you? To, I mean, I, you know, watching it as a as a
2: as a kid and, I, you know, with liberal parents and I, and I lived in a liberal city. Um, so it was not like I, I wasn't, you know, my my parents were not exactly a free market Uh, enthusiasts but i mean they weren't exactly communists either but i took it just completely face value that that um the natural endpoint of of human society would be uh evolution beyond capitalism i was just like (laughs) yep you know what makes sense like no money in the future sure um (laughs) and you know like i sort of uh it just it just made an elegant sense to me so i do i i think that one line in star trek four because they hadn't they hadn't addressed that before. They hadn't addressed the economy. Yeah, before they, they've been dragging.
1: coy about it, but this is the first time they ever really talked about the absence of money.
2: Yeah, and that was and that. I, I, I do I point to that as there's you know the meme of luxury space communism, and it's really it comes it's it's this movie like that's that's this is the movie that cemented the Federation as you know a socialist utopia, a post scarcity socialist utopia. Yeah.
1: Well, and I mean, it's something uh, as, as somebody who reads entirely too much science fiction, it's something I think about a lot. It's like, where do we move economically? And I guess the answer is if we're post-scarcity, I don't know that I care.
2: Yeah, no, exactly right. Like the, 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 the invention of the replicator or whatever
1: sort of renders a lot of those questions. Oh moot, yeah. Yeah. Right? It's like, okay, the, the <laughs> holodeck like leads to all sorts of weird places, but like the replicator is the big deal. I mean, all I need is a, right. is a handful of rocks and I can feed for a week. I'm in.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's actually, I don't know. Uh, Manu Sadia is a very, very smart guy. He wrote a whole book about the economics of Star Trek, but he's the one who sort of, who, who I realized from him that star Trek is one of the very few utopian American science fiction stories. Like when you, and when you actually sort of drill down on it, there are very few that present uh, a truly utopian future that, you know, there's no, there's obviously they, they just for storytelling purposes, the Federation always has to have like evil admirals and stuff, but like the general organization of society is like, you're not supposed to think it's hell. You're supposed to be like, that would be pretty good. Yeah. Do you think uh either
0: of you, I think Pete and I got into this a little bit when we discussed Galaxy Quest, but I'm curious to hear from both of you, honestly. The the repose to some of this, which I think you're giving me a springboard to, Alex, is just to say, like, well, they depict a post-scarcity utopia of kinds, but like couched in the sort of like late like 60s setting of the original show and stuff that can be read not so much as a leftist utopia, as like sort of like Sergeant Shriver Camelot, like po- liberal imperialism at its best,
2: right? Totally. Is,
0: is there a possibility of that too?
2: Oh yeah, that's definitely in there. And, and I mean, you know, Star Trek is a show about um, America imagining what the best version of it, of the sort of story it, it tells itself about what it is. Right. Um, and in the, it's actually very funny in the, in so in the sixties, it's like in a Cold War with a with a just a purely evil race, you know. <laughs> like the the Klingons have no characteriz have no consistent societal characterization beyond being evil throughout the entire original series. Um, and but you know the Feder and so the Federation, Federation is a good guys, and that's actually like why I like Next Generation is a really fascinating text uh, because uh, Gene Roddenberry, I think he had gone sort of full kook at that point, and and had you know they like the Federation had to be sort of idealized in this way that almost made it incredibly difficult to do drama. Uh, But uh, um, that was like the, the, you know, the end of the cold war end of history version of the Federation. Right. But so it is, it's, it's, it is a comforting story about, but you know, and I don't really like, if we're talking about American myth-making, I, I I do actually think there's some use to uh, trying to figure out what it would look like if we, did actually live up to the values we espouse, but don't practice. So, <laughs> um, because you know, the the alternative sort of is is this very bad trend in modern Trek and modern TV and, and modern genre fiction of being pseudo realistic uh, in a in a cynical way. But the cynicism isn't earned, right? Um, I think of it as as like post 9/11 like. Um this is just the way the world is. And if you think it could be better, you are naive. And that, that just like infuses so much genre fiction. Uh I I really do think it's a post 9 11 thing.
1: That's that's um, fascinating pr- to me be because like when I think about post-9-11, that's when like that was the end of irony in some ways. Like like I, I remember like regarding patriotism as some sort of brain disease on 9-10. 2001 yeah and then afterwards like a flag went by and i started tearing up
2: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. well so the, the, you know the, we're getting pretty far afield of star trek 4 but yeah that's why i think like <laughs> uh when you look the way it plays out and, and there's a couple different sort of ways i always think of it um and number one is the incredible popularity of the show 24 which is brilliantly made tv that is just morally reprehensible um and uh but it, well, the way it, what it happens in star trek is that it, it suddenly becomes very much you know i i never actually watched enterprise um i never finished it and uh, but i know that it got to be much like it got to be a lot more sort of about um a, you know existential threat to the the humans and and war and but and even on the the this sort of need to play up uh, in star trek discovery to play up section 31 which is star trek's intelligence agency um, and not just because there have been lots of there have been stories about Section 31 before, but now all the characters have to say things like, um, well, we don't always agree with their methods, but we <laughs> uh, but we ultimately we ultimately accept that they that they need to exist. And I'm like, you like that's not you don't need to accept they need to exist. That's what I mean about the sort of post 9-11 cynicism where you can't even I, I, I like the utopianism, even if it's even if it's like sort of phony, uh, a phony utopianism, at least like gives people something to aspire. To.
0: Well, that's to take that. That gives us a chance to actually to take it back to uh, Star Trek IV because one thought that I occurred to me after I'd watched this movie earlier today. Um, you're talking about the cynicism and the sort of the this is just the way the world is attitude um, that comes up post 9 11 in your view. But as we've done on this pod, um, this movie came out in 1986, and it's a very interesting document from 1986 because it is. That's the era of Blade Runner was coming out in those fears right around then. Uh, Neuromancer, the founding text of cyberpunk, came out of fears prior to that as well, 84, 85. And yet in 86, this comes out and it is definitively pre-cyberpunk, as of course Star Trek itself was, right? And cyberpunk is the ultimate Reaganite genre because it's like, well, yeah, of course the governing systems are shit. But we're going to make the most of it and we're going to be like awesome, badass space cowboy freelancers within it. Right. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, So, you know, that a lot of that attitude does very much where you sort of take the empire for granted and take the corporate power for granted. You know, it definitely predates 9-11 in a very real way. But like this is a movie that is highly resistant to what's going on in its immediate contextual space, which is interesting to me.
1: It's an anachronism, I think. Yeah. Well, I,
2: I mean, I'd love to hear you elaborate on that because I think Star Trek has has like, in a, in a way, not always been in very close conversation with other science fiction.
1: Oh, I think that's very true. I, if if can I just start babbling about this, guys? Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay. Well, the the thing the thing about Star Trek is. Uh, Gene Gene Roddenberry was always trying to design his own conversation. Based upon what what he said in interviews and based upon his behaviors, like he hired his own stable of writers to write things about like the Star Trek universe and he went out and like hand picked authors that he felt were sort of aligned with his viewpoint and like you you sort of end up throughout uh, like, from the '60s to the '90s, sort of this thread of Star Trek books that appear to have nothing to do with anything else. The only exceptions are, uh, are books that are designed to resonate with Star Trek and movies that are like de- to designed to resonate with Star Trek. Like Galaxy Quest is a really good example. Or, or the books that I wanted to recommend to you, Alex, at the end of this podcast, and that's uh, James Alex uh, James Alan Gardner's book, starting with Expendable, where he designs basically a, a completely different parallel uh, Star Trek style universe that I thought you might be interested in.
2: Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I haven't I haven't read it, read those, but I would I would definitely like to check it out.
1: But yeah, okay, I mean, not, not my smoothest book recommendation <laughs> handed out, but I'll take it. <laughs> But,
2: so, yeah, but, so, like, uh, you know, and uh, part of this is Roddenberry, I mean, he came from, I mean, he was a TV guy at heart, right? So, like, the people that he brought on, especially in the 60s, um, some of those, like, a lot of 60s Star Trek was, you know, they they had 60s sci-fi writers submitting scripts. But, like, the people running the show were TV people, not, like, uh, sci-fi magazine fiction writer people. Um, so I actually I, I do sort of think that was sort of part of how it never like completely blended in with the rest of the trends in American science fiction. But by the time you get to the movies, like we're talking about, starting with starting with Star Trek II through Star Trek Six, Roddenberry has been basically kicked out of the movie making process, and these are like Nick Meyer, uh, you know, who had done. Um, a time travel movie and therefore had done sci-fi, but who was basically just a screenwriter. Um, He was sort of the person doing the ideas along with the producer. I forget his name, Bennett, I think. Um, So like we're not even in Roddenberry's like he's lost control of the movie franchise at this point. So it's really just like these people trying to make, I mean, I think they were, they were trying to make movies that were entertaining and they were trying to make blockbusters. I actually joked to Connor, like I have a, I have a theory of Star Trek four that I just developed like earlier today that it's 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 the uh avengers Endgame of the star trek cinematic
1: universe
0: <laughs> i really want you to expand on that
1: that's a <laughs> it's a, well i i would like to point out though that that the death count the body count was a lot lower in this movie that's true, yeah. <laughs> like, but, nobody died.
2: Yeah, that's actually another interesting thing about it. There's the I think Leonard Nimoy was always like, "There's no villain." I mean, there's like the whalers are the villains and humanity is the villain.
1: <laughs> but like, yeah. I mean, I shouldn't laugh. I, like, I hate whalers, but still, yeah, yeah it's very yeah, odd. And-
0: this is where we should point out, if people haven't seen this movie, the uh, space probe that comes and wants to talk to humpback whales, which have gone extinct, like, we never actually see, like, inside it or who yeah. is running it, and it's, like, it is, it is is Solaris-level abstract. Yeah. It is, like, art arthouse film abstract. It's <laughs> actually
2: really cool. I actually, because I had sort of, when, when I think about, when I remember this movie, I only think about sort of the funny bits on Earth, but that first, the first act actually has a lot of really, like, like cool industrial light and magic, uh, like practical special effects with the 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 probe and stuff like that. But here's here's why it's endgame <laughs> because you know start like we're to, like these movies were hit. Star Trek IV in particular, I think, was the highest grossing one until the reboot. Um, this movie made a lot of money on a pretty small budget. They were like these these were blockbusters, and this was the third part of a three part story that was that was told in these basically summer blockbusters, starting with Star Trek II. Um, so the, you know, if you have, if you pick up and watch star Trek four and you are not familiar with what, what happened in two and three, you're lost for the first act. And like, you don't like, why is Spock acting like that? But anyway, it's, it's Avengers Endgame because (laughs) it's the conclusion to the story that was begun two movies ago and it has a time travel plot. (laughs) So I'm like, Oh yeah, it actually is. So it's a bad, it was like, it was a mega hit with a time travel plot that is concluding this like a cinematic epic that began years ago. Well,
0: and that's a really interesting thought. And I, I could almost guarantee you that some, some of the like hundreds of people that were involved in creating Endgame game in their cubicles definitely were thinking of this movie.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea very much. Uh, what the uh, it's in watching a film like this, it it's a, it's a mistake to look for points where the plot falls apart. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Because if you start pulling those threads, I mean, you know, you're, you're just going to have a pile of threads before. The, but I can't help but think about, like, okay, you go back in time, you grab two hel- humpback whales, you bring them to the future, and then you have them communicate with the aliens. Like, have we been well treated? Yeah. <laughs> no, right? Like, what
2: are the whales? The whales were like well, they were they were dicks to us for a really long time, but these ones seem fine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I would go back like like ten thousand years earlier and yeah. grab whales before people were whaling.
2: Yes, yeah, I might have acted might, might have been much smarter, actually. Like I don't know why we had to go to like right before they're going extinct. To, like, grab oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I mean, but they do like Spock, the the hand wave it by Spock is like, well, it's complicated I can't do that I can't you know the math is too hard, but uh I mean you know we know there, actually one of the things I like about this movie is that um, the rules, the time travel rules there's like there's very little farting around with like making them strict right it's, it's just like here's the setup because
1: we know the setup will lead to fun things happening <laughs> i'm I'm totally fine with that well, and I mean, if you're going to deal with the Star Trek universe, this is actually the fourth uh iteration of a time travel story within Star Trek. Yeah, that's like oh you mean like dating back to the
2: they tell you that there were
1: what three time travel episodes
2: in the in the original one.
1: Yep. Yep. And and then this one and then I like I don't even want to know how many were in the next generation. I can yeah, only they just, they, a just lot.
2: Did a, they they went back to that well more and more and more and they now it's like constant.
1: <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> well, but mean,
2: actually that's one of the funny things is like there there's just no there's like no con. There's no conversation in this movie where they where they warn anyone about the consequences of time travel. They just like do it. <laughs> there's like not the requisite like like we must be careful not to interfere with the time stream. They're just like we're gonna go get some whales. We're gonna bring them back. Oh well. Do, do you know Niven's law of time travel? Oh boy, I think I'm familiar. What is it?
1: Well, the I mean the ba- the basic idea is like uh, if if people can travel through time, you're going to keep resetting until you get to a a situation where you don't reset anymore, which is the timeline where nobody developed time travel.
2: Yes, yeah, right. And that I mean it makes and that it makes a lot. I mean what I I think I've heard the the you know the the version that like clearly if like if it was possible, there would be time travelers like. All over the place, and there aren't, so like we never develop it.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, that or we're all dead, I yeah,
2: <laughs> right,
0: or they walk among us. I mean, you guys are ruling this out right now. Um, <laughs> I uh, I find this interesting because I, when I'm watching a movie made about that's set in an American city from like 1968 to like 2004. Uh, I'm always looking for signs of people being extremely reactionary about what's happening in, in urban cores, because that's almost always there. Um, you know, anything between, like, the Nixon era and uh, the rise of sex in the city, basically. Um, and in this case, I would say this actually is one of the... L- not super reactionary ones. There's a t- there's one, uh Spock does his what's the like Vulcan neck pinch thing yeah, called? Yeah, just,
2: just to call the Vulcan nerve pinch, yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> he does his Vulcan, like, yeah, his, his nerve pinch on a guy who's playing a punk song and has a mohawk on the bus and everybody applauds, which is like the height of the genre of like all urban cores are shitholes full of gangsters. But like it's a lighthearted rendition of it, right? Like they're not getting robbed by street toughs. Like we're not going full, like dirty Harry or death wish here at least. Because they're in San Francisco. For people that haven't seen this movie, they're in like punk era San Francisco. And Pete, you have a good anecdote oh, about I have the a... punk song on the bus, right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes. So uh, the, that song was written by a, and performed by a band called The Edge of Etiquette which existed for about an hour and a half in 1986. <laughs> because what, what happened was they were going to go, like it's, it's not revealed what song it was, but they were going to go with some new age pop song. Like they were going to play like Duran Duran or <laughs> yeah, a Ha.
2: Because they, they were all like completely square and they, had no,
1: they didn't actually know what punk sounded like, I'm sure, like making the movie. Oh, exactly. <laughs> and so like some of the stagehands got together and stuff. And they're like, bullshit, we're making a pop, a, a punk band right now. And like that, that that was a painful punk song. Like that is the worst punk song I've ever heard. But it was a punk song, technically. Yes,
2: actually, like now that I know that it was a band that was formed for one hour by stagehands, it makes it, like, exponentially more punk. Like that's, <laughs> like, that's actually, like, it might be the only authentic punk song, actually.
1: Yeah, what is more yeah, punk than,
0: yeah. like, a bunch of people who got together an hour before because they're angry at their bosses yelling the most predictable lyrics to, like, the most basic music. I mean, come on.
1: Yeah. Oh, and bonus trivia, that song does have the word fuck on it, but uh, he actually, he gets the Vulcan nerve pinch before right he before says it. The,
2: Right before the uh,
1: fuck. <laughs> man. that's that, incredible that's it. yeah
2: because like the, the so the, there's a funny thing about that you're right because um all the every especially in the 80s like especially especially in the 80s but every yeah every post-nixon movie popular movie that involves a city it, like the city has to be a hellhole. and that that scene it's always very funny me like that kirk is like just like getting so like could you turn it down like he's like such an angry old man about it but like, uh, but you—you you really, the only music and culture anyone ever talks about or enjoys in Star Trek is like is from the nineteenth century or earlier. So I just I think that they specifically in the world of Star Trek have an aversion to twentieth century culture. Like like that's the only the only thing they hate.
1: Oh <laughs> like and this. they're such snobs. Like anytime you encounter a captain like doing leisure reading or something, like somebody will walk in and they'll have they'll be holding a leather bound book and they're like, Yes, you know I, I like having I- information directly downloaded in my brain, but the smell of a good book <laughs> Yes, yeah. oh my God.
2: <laughs> and the, you know the, it's like they do it in this movie too. but and every every good Star Trek has especially an alien doing it. Anytime an alien cites Shakespeare, I like you just, I do the chefs kissing my fingers thing. I'm like that's, <laughs> that's Star Trek right there. An alien citing citing Shakespeare. So so then that, so that you go to the JJ Abrams Star Trek just to like be a really like annoying nerd about this like the in the JJ Abrams Star Trek like Kirk is blasting the Beastie Boys while like riding a motorcycle like do you think so this is the same one who grows up to like get pissed off at a punk on the bus for playing his punk music <laughs> Like, he's like, oh, I love the song Sabotage by the Beastie Boys uh, as a as a youth. And then, but then, I you know, becomes a completely cranky anti-punk when he grows up.
0: That's a really good point is that I, I don't know nearly as much about Star Trek as either of you guys. But, like, taking the new age, because the new Star Trek movies are, like, okay. But they're not necessarily Star Trek because, again, like, Kirk has all this attitude and stuff. And, like, the reality about the William Shatner James T. Kirk is that he's extremely confident and full of himself but supremely square right like yeah
2: yeah 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 kirk's not cool i mean he's like he's yeah he's he's or at least you are supposed to think he is charismatic and and suave and and definitely confident but he's not like he's not hip kirk is never hip Right, and not
0: he's. Not, I don't know that like the early Star Trek gives us a standard of comparison for like who would be cool and hit, but like
2: I refuse Chekov. to believe it's him. Chekhov, oh, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. i've well, had the
1: long hair. I don't. I don't think anybody on the set necessarily had the concept of cool at that point.
2: No way. I mean, that's what that's. I mean, I was joking, but Chekhov, The joke was they brought him in in season two. And they gave him a beetle haircut. because They were like, this will appeal to the kids. That was oh like that god. was like all that was the closest they came to even having any concept of cool was it's like they brought in a, a Russian helmsman with a beetle haircut.
1: Do you remember the episode with the hippies? Yeah, the hippie episode, yeah.
2: Yeah. They, oh and, my god. <laughs> um and they yeah, they were and they were singing the song. Uh right, God, it was so sixties. It's like there the Vulcan very... is so
1: square. Now go ahead, man.
0: <laughs> oh no, they had some. They combined those with some great, sort of very lighthearted hippie punching in this movie, right? Because the idea was that Spock was acting weird because he was a former hippie from Berkeley. They pointed out, who uh, took as as Kirk said, too much LDS. That was part of the joke. He took yeah. too oh. much Latter Day Saints. And, yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I was,
1: exactly. I just assumed he was a Mormon. I mean,
0: it That's, was that was pretty. They had some great Kirk lines in this. There was another another fantastic one that I tweeted was uh, the 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 present day love interest was like, "Oh, let me guess, you're from out of outer space?" And he's like, "No, I'm from Iowa. I just work in outer space." <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, this this movie is like, this, this movie is actually extremely well written. And again, I like I will credit Nick Meyer as the guy who saved the franchise. Like Star Trek 2, Like Star Trek the motion picture is this uh, sort of really you weird. You can use
1: the word turd on here.
2: No, no, I actually, yeah, well, um, I, 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 I was like, I've got, I want to rewatch it. I hadn't seen it in years and it's, it's absolutely beautiful. And it was, it was incredibly expensive for its time. Um, and it's beautiful, but it's like, um, it's got no life at all. And it's got big ideas. It's got the Roddenberry big ideas. Um, but the, the crew are like, they have just no character. And so Nicholas Meyer comes in and, and writes Star Trek two and like all of a sudden you were like oh all these people they're my friends like i these are their, you know and they suddenly they're kirk's worried about getting older and he's and and they all suddenly have like human concerns and you know to some degree and i'm for a huge trek nerd i'm like i'm fairly down on roddenberry as a writer but like the, there's something in, in next generation like they were robots until the other until roddenberry uh not till he, died, but until other writers and, and other producers sort of took control of the show. Um, but, uh, so, you know, the, this, this movie has like a lot of actually really good lines in it and is, it I would, you know, I think, I, I think holds up pretty well and it's pretty enjoyable.
1: I'm inclined to agree. I, this, I, I would say that that my favorite is always going to be the Wrath of Khan. Uh, oh, totally. Yeah. 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 But like th- th- this one's a lot of fun. It, uh, uh, it's certainly the most playful of the Star Trek movies, and I mean that's not nothing.
2: Yeah, I mean, and so- it gives it gives everyone something to do too, which is when you you had this big ensemble cast, but it, like it always becomes the Kirk and Spock show in every one of these movies. But in this one, like everyone gets a little bit of business, which I which I enjoy too. You got some really good. I always like seeing uh, McCoy just going around getting mad at everything. Like Maj- Leonard McCoy is probably my favorite original cast character. Um, because again, he's living in luxury space, communist future, and he's just constantly pissed about everything. (laughs) He's like not, he's just not happy to be on his futuristic
1: starship. Oh, yeah. The (laughs) the dude, the dude was born to wear a MAGA hat. I'm sorry. (laughs) Oh man. That's a, that's a
0: grim thought. That's probably very true. Oh, wow. (gasps) Damn it, Jim.
1: My taxes are too high. (laughs) So let let's talk about the wider world of Star Trek for for a moment. So the, there are layers and layers of technology that we're, leads to weird combinations and ways you can break the world. Like what, what's what's the goofiest technology to you? Like is it the time travel? Is it the transporters? Is it the holodeck? Like what what gives you the greatest joy in the in the 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 tech silliness of the future here?
2: Well, the the way that um the the way casual way they time travel in this movie completely breaks everything right mm-hmm. and they they've they've sort of they've later on they have tried and this is a, a plot from Enterprise that I have only like read about on the wiki because I never actually watched it but there was like a temporal Cold War where people from the future like kept traveling back in time and waging war. And like that's actually the only logical like F, like next step once you say, oh, any warp capable civilization can time travel at will um uh, <laughs> like yeah it would, it would just it would just lead to madness, <laughs> like the like reality would collapse basically oh, um yeah. well,
1: eventually <laughs> you would hit a combination that exterminates everybody, you'd have to
2: yes, exactly, so i feel like it's so it's it's funny, I do like this idea that like're like well, we can time travel whenever we can whenever we want, but we are not supposed to, so we
1: don't <laughs> yeah, for moral reasons, we don't alter the past <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mine is the transporter. Because, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I mean, I could be wrong, but my understanding from everything I've read is the basic idea is you are disintegrated on one end, and in the process they make a map of you, and they recreate someone else using that map on the other end.
2: Yes. Yeah, it, it, it creates an incredible philosophical and metaphysical uh, <laughs> problems. <laughs> like, it's a murder clone machine. <laughs> yes. And I know that they have tried to, you know, I feel like I've read, I've read like explanations of why it isn't
1: that, but none of them it, like clearly is that. Oh, <laughs> well, I, I mean, you, you can play the games with it. I'm, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure you've gone through this all the time, but like, suppose you, you come up with a variation of the transporter that doesn't require you to disintegrate the person on one end. Like, shouldn't you do it anyway? Because otherwise, he hasn't gone anywhere.
2: Well, <laughs> so I feel like the the idea was that um, you have continuity of consciousness, right? So that's supposed to be the idea. So your your consciousness uh, has continuity because it's in the transporter buffer. So therefore, you're not killed. But they, they have like violated that too because Riker got a transporter clone, <laughs> and if you can get a transporter clone, <laughs> then something is screwy here. <laughs> Unbelievable his transporter clone is great by the way. Riker's a great character, but Thomas Riker is transporter clone goes on to join an an anti-Starfleet
1: resistance movement. <laughs> well, and like speaking of Riker, they 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 break open a multiverse. With him, like do you remember when they were battling the Borg and there's a time thing and they end up in a in a place where there's like 40,000 enterprises at the same place because of a time glitch?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> and yeah, right. And then there's yeah the inter- the uh, Enterprise C comes through the the uh, time vortex and creates an alternate future where the Federation's at war, and then the alternate future Enterprise D has to agree to destroy themselves to reestablish the original future that we enjoy. <laughs> yeah,
1: wow.
0: <laughs> so. I want you guys to sell this for me. This is all. This is all very fascinating. But like one thing that I see pop up on my Twitter timeline a lot that I have no context for is, I guess people are supposed to think that between Deep Space Nine and Next Generation, like one is clearly better, and sometimes that's a controversy. So which which is supposed
2: to be the better one? Well, it's it's uh, <laughs> so it depends on what actually. So I I but here's my here's my my explanation for this. Um, like I said earlier, I grew up on, on, grew up on, on next generation. It was on, it was on like twice a night. I could mainline it. And and at the most, like at the age at which you are the most susceptible to like any sort of TV that inspires or any media that inspires obsession. Um, so that's the one like next generation for me and, you know, for people who are, who are older than me, it was the original series, but next generation for me is like the text, and then DS9 is like, okay, you grew up on Star Trek. DS9 is like, all right, here's a twist on it. And DS9 is extraordinarily well written um, and incredibly entertaining. But it's, I feel like it's sort of less, um, uh, less sort of uh, impactful if you are not already intimately familiar with what it is commenting on because it it does it subverts some of the tropes of Star Trek but you have to actually be invested in those tropes for that to matter
0: hmm. yeah that's interesting what do you think Pete
1: well I I really like his argument and I'm tempted to hide behind it uh <laughs> I I think my my take uh for what it's worth is that um this is a show that informs a lot of people's childhoods And it's going to be very difficult, unless unless you unless you grab somebody who's never seen it before and have have them watch them all now. Like, oh well,
0: I got good news for
2: you, Pete.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, all we need to do is convince you to watch them all. But
2: you should, I you should, I mean, really, like, you should mainline next generation because it's like it's it's a great '90s or '80 late late '80s early '90s document. It's like it's it's such a it's such a strange show and, and like. Uh It's hard to imagine something that weird, especially in the way it initially is. It's so weird in its earliest seasons. Uh, it's hard to imagine something like that like existing now.
0: So you're saying I should alternate it with uh Highlander and Xena Warrior Princess basically totally
2: yeah if you want, actually if you want the original experience, yeah, it should be the it should be the early 90s syndicated TV block where you watch like. <laughs> Two next generation episodes, and then Hercules and Zena. Like, and then you should yeah. do, do that every Doctor Quinn. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> wow.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, Earthworm Jim. There was a lot of good things happening back.
2: then. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, uh, yeah, and uh, so, um, I actually I think I read that the next generation they finally uh, they finally started to go through with next generation because. This is Star Trek IV is a movie where the original cast was started to ask for too much money. <laughs> like oh. Shatner Shatner was like like he Shatner was threatening to walk away. And Limoy was was a director now. So they were like Let's just get some, some people we can pay a lot less to start making some new Star Trek.
1: Oh, that's classic. I actually, I, I have bad news for you. It's worse than that. Oh, is it? Yeah. So, so what, what happened was, uh, Leonard Nimoy was the director. So they started paying him more money and they're like, come into four. And Kirk is like, well, I'm sick of Star Trek. So they had to give him a lot more money. And, on the basis of that, they had less money for the next generation at first. Oh. So they cut the budget to make Star Trek IV. And I fortunately, see. it was a hit. Yeah, that's a perfect
0: boomer parable for our
2: times.
1: It actually (laughs) is. It actually is.
2: They like, they like literally the next generation had to like had to suffer austerity so that William Shatner could get paid.
1: That's
0: beautiful.
2: (laughs) Actually, is beautiful.
1: It's like, Uh, oh my god, the model of the Enterprise broke. Uh, the saucer is detachable. It's part of our plan. Yeah. (laughs) Uh,
0: Oh God. Too perfect. So Alex, I want to ask you, um, you know, we're obviously a science fiction pod nominally, although I feel like we're moving in the direction of doing a lot of different genre fiction. Um, so probably aside from things like, you know, Turgenev, uh, what are some of the like other books, movies, TV shows, video games, other narrative arts that are really important to you?
2: Well, so with Star Trek, it's funny, uh, like, I was, I mean, I was a huge nerd about it as a preteen, as a teen, and, and to the, you know, I I went to conventions and everything, Um and it was sort of, like, one of the oh things- Oh, my
1: God. I know,
2: I know. It was one of the things that I sort of discarded in my young adulthood, like, and I I went through a, like, I don't have a TV phase to a degree. Um, this is a
0: big confession coming from you, because, like, to dish on you your bio a little bit, I feel like you were- you were one of the cool kids of the peak blogging era. And now you're here telling us you went to Star Trek convention. This is a big, this is a big mask off moment.
2: (laughs) 12 year old, 12 year old Alex Perrine like went to, went to, well, one Star Trek convention and one, one mystery scenes, mystery science theater 3000 convention. Uh, But, um, wow. uh, um, But like the stuff, I mean, when I, so then part of it, like what else did I like when at that age the sort of, Young teen age, I got obsessed with uh, Asimov as well. I read, I probably read almost every piece of every not, every piece of fiction he wrote, which is a ton. Um, and uh, and um, what else did I? You know what else would I love? Then I mean, so yeah, Mystery Science Theater three thousand was huge. Um, I'm. It's from Minnesota. I'm from Minnesota. Um, Wait, you're
1: from Minnesota?
2: Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm from Minnesota um i went to st olaf yo you went to st olaf oh yeah yeah mike once crashed a wedding my mom was attending uh and uh from mystery science theater but uh oh cool yeah but um uh is is he the guy who voiced crow No, mike was the second host after joel oh Um, oh mike yeah yeah, so he uh he crashed the wedding my mom was at this wedding and uh uh, all these guys who like no one knew were there clearly crashing it and, and they were wearing i think i think they were like had their like mystery science theater t-shirt on or something it was a reception and uh my mom was like oh we love that show we love it um but we're so bummed because Joel's leaving the
1: host <laughs> oh
2: that is wonderful mike was like maybe the new guy will be good and she was like no i don't think he will be <laughs> Oh, that is amazing. (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, so yeah, that was actually, that was actually a really big, Uh, like, God, I loved MSU 3K. And, uh, um, and you know, video games, I was a Nintendo kid. Actually, I had an, I had a, I had a Sega Genesis, so I was not actually. Can
1: can I freeze you for a second? I have a related Mystery Science Theater story. Mm -hmm. Um, I was at a friend's party. And I had cranberry, vodka, whatever for the first time and ended up getting sick like one foot from the guy who voiced Crow. Like, oh. I nearly threw up on the man. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Though we've, we, if we had him on the show, I would be so embarrassed if he placed the voice. But yeah. I'm sorry. You, you were talking about Sega. My bad. No, yeah. I'm just trying
2: to think of other – because
1: that's not really narr- – actually, so
2: if you want to talk narrative, the LucasArts games are like the other narrative – Like
1: like Kodor, that sort of thing?
2: uh, Like, yeah, well, no, like the, like, uh, uh, Maniac Mansion, Sam and Max, um, I loved the, all of the adventure games, um, that they did. Like, those were like my favorite video games. And I got very bummed that that stopped being a a thing they even made. So I, you know, I I have the, this like sort of thing about video games where I need them to either have no narrative or only narrative. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like mm-hmm. so i, I either want to be playing like tetris or playing a like a story that i don't have to be good at shooting to win you know but uh um i think we're yeah it sounds like
0: you're a bethesda games guy to me uh if you don't like if you don't like <laughs> care about combat systems and you just like story um i actually have a question that might not make any sense in the context of this podcast, but I'm very curious about it. Like we've already buttered you up a little bit or a lot about uh how we, our opinion of your writing. Um just out of left field, like, I think you're one of the better uh definitely one of the better prose stylists among political commentators. Um would you say that your voice in the page and your prose was influenced at all by any fictional and or narrative nonfiction stuff, or is it purely like a, does it come from your readings in journalism? I mean, where do you think that comes from?
2: Well, who did I, who was, who was I imitating? I've been imitating a lot of different people or, you know, trying to write like different people. Um, you know, I'm, and this is like, um, I get mildly embarrassed about it now, even though I, I feel like I really shouldn't, but Hunter Thompson was, was a huge one, but I feel like he's such a, he's just so masculine and so um, like a lot of people take all the sort of wrong lessons from him. And I, I feel like what I like the style was obviously a massive part of it for me, but also just the fact that he he had a conscience and like, there are a lot of very good stylists with no conscience. And I, I think that what I, what I take from his writing is that he had like, he had a conscience that he really couldn't get away from. Um, so he, you know, he was a, he was a huge, a huge influence on me sort of initially. I'm trying to like, in terms of other i mean <clears throat> um
1: honestly i think he's somebody that needs to be reclaimed
2: yeah i, I would i would agree with that <clears throat> and uh you know there, i feel like there're just too many where yeah too many people take the style but not the not the uh the sort of the morality because i think he he i think he had a he you know he was actually cared very deeply about um what he was writing about in a way that was not like a lot of the new journalists were style over everything else, and he was definitely not um and then you know uh uh I think that <clears throat> boy the probably the most the the books I was the most obsessed with were when I was like that probably had the biggest influence on my the Ethical part of what I my project is were were probably like Slaughterhouse 5 and Catch 22, uh, which I sort of read at the same time in like eighth grade and I have like reread uh, over and over and over and over again since. But like, they're, they're both like I feel like probably extremely influential on my on my outlook.
0: Yeah, are you big on Vonnegut, uh, beyond Slaughterhouse 5?
2: Yeah, I like Vonnegut a lot and and I. Um, he's someone that I probably would like to go sort of go back and, and revisit. Cause it's actually been a while since I've dug into his entire, uh, output. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I was huge on Vonnegut and I, I was he was another one where i like, after I read, I had like a, it was one of those like after-school special things where like a teacher was like, I think you'll like this book and gave me Slaughterhouse five. And then I, I sort of like went to the library and got everything else I could, but yeah, Vonnegut was huge.
1: So help me test a dumb theory. Um, do you like Tom Robbins? I do. You know, I was never huge into Tom Robbins, but I, I liked him. Yeah. <clears throat> I've, I have found that when I talk to people, they're either, they're either like Vonnegut people or Robbins oh, people.
2: I think you might be right about that because I'm definitely a Vonnegut person. And like I, I read Tom Robbins, but I was never like a
1: Tom Robbins person. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a I'm a vonnegut person too, for the record.
2: So it yes. goes. That's actually a good. That's an interesting. I'm, I'm going to start. I'm going to steal that from you. I'm going to ask people when I ask them who they like. I'm going to ask people that. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> hey, I'm
0: a vonnegut guy too, and that's probably the one thing that all three of us agree on in the uh, world of narrative arts. So <laughs> <laughs> that's that's probably a pretty good place to leave it. Honestly, um, Alex, thank you so much for joining us, man. And hey, we might have you back to talk about vonnegut sometime.
1: Oh, I would love uh, to. Yeah. Yes, please. (laughs)
0: Cool, cool. Well thanks so much. And um yeah, I I I almost made a Star Wars joke here at the end. I got the words mixed up, but I think what I wanna say is live long and prosper, everyone. (laughs)
2: There you go. All right. Live long and prosper. Take care. Thank you everybody.
1: Take care.